Hello, everybody. Hello. Okay, so this never happens. We're a full, like, nine minutes early on our timeline right now, which is fantastic because I always go over. Um, but uh, I'm not planning to go over, so I'm going to take this opportunity to, to ad-lib something real quick here. Um, I, uh, I'm always running around on, on Sunday morning most of the times trying to get the children's classrooms situated, make sure everything's good, and, and I always catch the last song. And it's so great... Uh, today just to be able to sit and worship. And I don't know if you guys have the same experience as I do of worship or, or if you guys appreciate it like I do because of what I feel like worship does. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but when, when I'm out in the week, I feel like my, my inclination of my heart slowly starts to, to drift inward all week long. My heart just drifts just inward to focusing on myself. And there's something about worship where singing the words to a song saying, Lord, I need you, sometimes during the week that might not feel like it's the case for me. Maybe I get more self-sufficient as the week goes on, but when I come back in on Saturday or Sunday and sing those words, Lord, I need you, it focuses my attention back where it needs to be and then helps me to to navigate ministry the way that it needs to be as well outwardly. So I I hope you guys have that same experience with, with worship. It's such an important thing to engage and to sing those songs, even if in the moment you're not feeling it, or if that whole week you weren't feeling it, and you feel wrong for saying those things, Say it anyway. Proclaim those truths because your heart, your heart needs it. It needs to be reoriented to what's right. So I just wanted to say that. Um, so uh, hello, everybody. You might be wondering why I'm here. I'm not supposed to be here. Mark is supposed to be here. Uh, he is supposed to be preaching this weekend, and he's not because uh, he got sick again on his way back from Texas. The last three times he's been to Texas, out of four, he's gotten sick when he got back. This time, um, though, he got laryngitis. He literally cannot speak. He cannot speak. The doctor told him he can't whisper, he can't do anything. So, bad call, getting laryngitis as a pastor. That's not good for your profession. Um, But I'm here with you guys. Pray for Pastor Mark. I I know he's trying to rest his voice. If you know Pastor Mark well, you know that that's not easy for him. He's a talker, right? Like him and Karen can just get together and go for like... Like, like six months, um, and my wife well as well. So, um, so pray for him to feel better. I, I do have a few random little things for you guys. Um, one, if you, if you guys see your bulletins, there's just a little announcement in here, and I don't want to just pass it by briefly. Um, there's a picture of, of Zach and Nicole Miller. I don't know if you know them, um, but Nicole has, has come on staff. She was kind of helping us out in the office for the last few months, and we decided that she's too good for us to let her go. So she's now kind of working part-time as administrative assistant, helping us in the office. Um, And she's now permanent instead of temporary, and we're just really excited to have her. So uh, if you see her around during the weekend, her and her husband, Zach, have been serving in youth ministry for forever. They've been a part of this church for forever, and it's so cool to take someone from our church and offer them uh, kind of a position in the church that helps them financially, but definitely helps us more in the office. We could definitely use the help. So if you see her, uh, just get to know her. Make sure that you, she feels loved. And be, I, I freaked her out by telling her that I was going to talk about her tonight. So if you could do me a favor and walk up and be like, I can't believe what Doug said about you last night. If you're here tomorrow, that would be fantastic because it would really bother her. And I, I don't, I'm not going to tell her anything. And, and I just really want that to happen. So please, please make that happen. Um, the other thing is we are actually finishing up uh, uh, the book of Esther next week. 
Um, we're in chapter 8 today. We'll be in chapter 9 and 10, because 10 is really short next week, which means we're actually going to be starting a new book in just a few weeks here, and we're starting the book of Colossians, which is one of my, my favorite letters of Paul uh, to the church at Colossae. It's, it's an amazing letter uh, that just has so much practical theology and life application for us. And so, as always, we are asking that you guys read through and advance the book of Colossians. So from now, for if you have a few weeks' notice, it's a few short chapters. It should take you 30 minutes max to read through the book of Colossians. It is fast. So we would love for you to read through it once, twice, three times, as many times as you can in preparation for our Colossians uh, service. One more thing. Um, the church in Heath... Uh, TRCC Heath just had their last preview service this, this last week, um, which means that they are launching in September. So what we've decided to do is, you know, there's been a lot of you that have contributed financially, a lot of you that are actually committing to go out there for the launch service, which I think is fantastic. But we wanted to have just another opportunity to, to kind of gather together as a church and support what they're doing. And so what we're going to do is uh, for two, two weekends before each service, the 5 o'clock service, the 9 o'clock service, and the 11 o'clock service, we're going to gather upstairs in 210 um, with the prayer team, Pastor Mark will be there every single week, and I'm sure Michael and myself will be there most of the time as well, and Chris, um, just to gather together to just pray, just to pray for what's going on. They had uh, over 90 people this last weekend. Um, they've got a big shindig coming for their launch with the in-and-out truck coming and bounce houses and all kinds of things, and they're getting ready for up to 200 people potentially for their first weekend. So we just really want to, to pray and ask God to bless their efforts there and reach as many people as they can for Christ, all right? So I'll see you guys all here before the service on the 25th, 26th, or 25th and the 1st, right? You guys good for that? All right. All right. Let's get started. Um, we're going to be in Esther 8 today, and um, I just wanted to to kind of frame this for you as best as possible. And the, the best way I know how is to just, to just give this silly little uh, introduction here. For those of you who don't, don't know this about me, I actually grew up in the mountains, in the San Bernardino Mountains, okay? I grew up in Crestline and Lake Arrowhead primarily. Um, do you guys know what's great about growing up in the mountain? Yeah, well, when, you, when you find out, let me know. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. No. Mm. Uh, no, no, seriously, uh, the, 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 the mountain, as we call it, it, it's a cool place. It really is a cool place. Um, it's a smaller, tight-knit community. There's one junior high, one high school. Everybody knows each other. You run into everybody in Stater Brothers. It's just a normal thing. Uh, there's beautiful seasons. You've got these great, beautiful seasons, nice, big mountain homes. You've got the lake. You've got places to go, cool stuff to do. It's great. You want to know what's not great about growing up in the mountains? Other than... Other than the fact that it takes you 45 minutes to get to Target, uh, it sometimes snows feet at a time that you have to shovel your 200-foot driveway. Not joking. I had the longest driveway in the world. Okay? Or the fact, that, uh, uh, the fact that there's about four places to eat on the entire mountain. Other than those things, the biggest downside of growing up on the mountain is that there is absolutely nothing to do. Just, just nothing to do. I mean, you, you can go hiking, um, you can go swimming in the lakes, that's all fun, but you can look at the beautiful trees, it's great, but honestly, that stuff gets really old really fast, it really does. The, the first time you see the beautiful forest, you're, you, you know what your reaction is, your reaction is like, ooh, ah, pretty, okay? Do you know what your reaction is 
after seeing that same tree in your yard for 10 years drop pine needles on your property and have to rake them year after year, and then the pine pollen gives you horrible allergies, and you got to spray it off your cars, and then the pine sap destroys your car, and you got to scrape it off with a razor blade, and you're taking the paint off. You know, what, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like a chainsaw is what it sounds like. That's what you want to do to those trees. It gets really, really boring, all right? Um, anybody like me grew up in a smaller town? Anybody? Anybody? A few people? A few people? Okay, so you don't have to shout it out, but... It's rhetorical, but you can try to answer. Um, when, you're, when you're young in a small town and there's nothing to do, what do you end up doing? You get in trouble. Correct. So um, I did some things when I was younger that I think would be considered unwise. Okay? Some things that would be considered unwise. Um, I, one of the things I did was I loved going on hikes by myself in the middle of the forest. Okay? And after a while, the hikes got boring. So I remember this one time, I was on this, this nice little hike that I would do all the time, and um, I was about four miles off trail, it's, it's going to get progressively worse here, so I'm hiking by myself about four miles off trail, and I'm going, man, I'm kind of bored, I wonder if there's anything cool around here, you know those rocks over there, that looks like a place where mountain lions would live, let's go up there. So I, I go up there, hey, that little opening in the rocks looks like a cave, let's go in there. So I, I go in there. You know what? That, those droppings look like a big cat. Cool. <laughs> look at those scratch marks on the tree. Cool. Let's hang out up here for a little bit. I actually did that. I actually crawled into a mountain lion cave. Something's wrong with me. I was so bored that that was entertainment for me. And I'm terrified of mountain lions. I don't know what's wrong with me. We found things to do like that all the time. Now, one of the things that we would always do, and this is like a rite of passage when you live up in the mountain, is there's this place called Strawberry Peak. It is one of the tallest peaks in the mountain area, and on top of this peak, there's this big concrete building that's abandoned that's completely locked down, and everybody would go in there, and there's this giant 70-foot microwave tower. And everybody would go, at some point in their high school years, go and climb to the top of the microwave tower, the 70 feet. It was really terrifying. And when you got up there, there's this tiny little platform that you can stand on. And when you would stand on this platform, you could kind of see out across everything. You could see Lake Silverwood, Lake Gregory, Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear Lake. You could see Highland, Redlands. You can see down into the city. You could see the high desert. You could see all the way to the ocean. You could see everything from this peak, absolutely everything when you're standing on this little precipice. And it's interesting when you're up there how you can kind of see how everything is connected, connected together from that vantage point. Um, it's one thing when you're going out on a hike or when you're swimming in a lake, you're really only paying attention to your next step that's in front of you or maybe the, the end goal of your hike or you only really feel the water that's around you. But when you get up to the top of the peak of the tower, you kind of see how all of those little things become beautiful and interconnected in a very special way. There's joy and delight to be found in the details, but there's also joy and delight to be found in the big picture, to see how everything is connected. Some find it easier to jump into the details, to jump into the water. Some find it easier to climb up to the tower, but I think it's important for us to do both. As followers of Christ, I think we are called by God to dive into the details of his word and ascend the heights to be able to see the big picture of what God is doing. I think we're called to do both. And so today, I want to spend a little bit of time in the details, but I want to spend a lot of time 
up on the tower, gazing down to see how these pieces fit together and are interconnected. All right? So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the, to the beginning of uh, Ruth eight, or Esther 8. Uh, Father, we, um, we are amazed at, at how far our hearts can get off um, from true center with you. And, and how much just a time of worship and singing songs and praise and worship to you and recalibrating our hearts by hearing your word can do in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would sustain us through our wanderings, through our tendency to flee from you, Lord, and help us to see the grand picture of what you're doing in and through us and, and in your world and in your people. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would give us insight and clarity uh, through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So why don't you guys go ahead and turn to, to chapter 8 of Esther. Um, we're going to read through that in a second. We're in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, if you don't know, so you can grab that on your phone if you need to. Um, we're going to read it in just a second, but I just want to do a brief recap of, of where we are this far. Now, I think we've done a recap every single week of Esther. So if you don't know the story by now, well, you should know the story by now. So I'm not going to go through a whole recap of the book, but I do just want to recap what happens in chapter 7. So in chapter 7, it's quite simple. Um, Haman's plot gets found out, and Queen Esther approaches the king and lets the king know that Haman's plot is to kill the Jews, at which point the king sentences Haman to death in the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And that is how the, 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 the chapter is. That, that's, that's the basic summary of what happens in chapter 7. So what happens in chapter 7 is essentially the villain is defeated in this story and he is put to death and things get righted for the most part. All right? For the most part. So Haman decrees, uh, you know, or uh, the king decrees that Haman should be put to death in this great show of irony uh, on the same gallows that Mordecai should have been hanged on which is a funny way to do a little plot twist at the end. Now, let's go from there and see, though, that not everything is righted yet. There's still a problem that has to be resolved, and you see that in chapter 8, and you get the full resolution here. So chapter 8 of Esther says this. On, the day, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had discovered, disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme that Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor before him... And the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleased in his sight. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman and the son of Hamdathia, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. 
So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. The satraps, the governors, and the princes, and the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and to their language. He wrote in the name of the king of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers and horses riding on steeds sired by a royal stud. In them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law and each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went on riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews and a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So in chapter 7, the bad guy of the story is defeated. Haman, who had devised this and, and executed this devious plot to get rid of the Jews, to kill the Jews completely, is sentenced to death. And the evil villain is now you know, revealed to the king. The king takes care of it. And in this amazing turn of events, Haman's position, his title, and his authority is not just taken away at his death, but it's now given over to Mordecai. Mordecai is now second in command of all of the area of Persia. Second in command, second to the king. If it wasn't ironic enough that, that Haman be hung on the gallows that Mordecai was intended to be hung on, it's even more ironic that his position was handed, not even asked for, handed over to Mordecai. But just because the villain was defeated, there's still a problem, right? So the problem still existed. That evil plot that Haman conjured up to, to attack and kill the Jews was still in effect. The decree to kill the Jews had been sealed with the signet ring of the king. And when that happened, it became law. So Esther once more pleads with the king to revoke the letter of Haman, to revoke the law, to cancel this decree that Haman wrote and that was sealed with the signet ring. But there's a problem, and you actually see what the problem is in verse 8. It says, in later half of verse 8, for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Oh no. <laughs> We've got a problem. The king cannot simply cancel out that order. That order is in law forever. It is against Persian law to cancel any, king by, any order by a king, any decree by a king. That now stands forever, place and time, that those people could attack the Jews on that day and wipe them out and kill and destroy them. 
So what happens? What are they going to do? Well, what happens is Queen Esther, she, she tries to ask them to revoke the decree, and the king responds by saying, well, you can't do that, but Mordecai, now you can write your own decree and just go about it however you want. Essentially, he's saying, I'm out of this situation now. I've taken care of Haman. I'm out, but you guys can write a decree and see if you can fix the problem. So the decree that Mordecai writes doesn't revoke the previous decree, since the king made it explicitly clear that cannot happen. Instead, it says in verse 11 that Mordecai wrote a new decree. And the decree says that it granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them. So Mordecai's decree was not to cancel out the previous decree, but it allowed the Jews to defend themselves against their attackers if they came against them. So those who were planning originally to go on that day and attack the Jews were now deterred from doing so. Because they knew that the Jews could fight back and without consequence kill and destroy them. So this, in effect, minimized the attack that was going to be leveled against the Jews. Now you see in chapter 9 that there still is an attack against the Jews and the Jews defend themselves, but this minimized that. So, in essence, the Jews are saved from their enemies on, from this fateful day. But there's actually one little piece that I find very fascinating in here that I think is just a little detail um, that you might have missed. The decree for the Jews to defend themselves is now sealed with the king's signet ring and is now an immovable law from the king of Persia. And they're not just allowed to defend themselves from this one day, from this one attack, but from any people who are going to come against them at any point. So anybody after this point who comes after them, they now have the right to kill the entire army or people or anybody that comes against them in entirety without any consequence from the Persian Empire. That's an amazing provision of God that he didn't just stop the one day, but he set them up for the rest of the time that they would be there so that his people could be protected long term. And we know this because it actually says in the very end of the chapters, it says, and among the peoples of the land, and many people among the land became Jews. That's awesome, right? You're like, wow, that's a really great story. Everybody ends. Now people want to become Jews. Well, why are they becoming Jews? It's actually funny when you read it. It says, why? It says, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. They didn't want to be a Jew because it sounded like a great thing to do, and they really loved the God of the Jews. That, that, that's not... It's not what it sounds like. It sounds like people are now trying to become Jews because they knew that the Jews were untouchable and could gather against any people without consequence. They didn't want to be the enemies of the Jews. They wanted to be part of the Jews. They wanted to be a part of this group that now had this right that if any attacker came against them, they could fight against them and destroy them and all of their people without consequence. Interesting little detail. So, so God, in this ironic turn of events not only saves them from this one event, but he provided for them the means of their extended protection as long as they're in that kingdom. I think that's pretty cool. That's pretty much what happens in chapter 8. So what's the point of this whole story? What are we supposed to learn from this? How does this story change our thinking? What is it, how does this help us? How does this help us to understand something? Or what does it help us to believe about God or about ourselves? Well, what is the point? 
To answer that question, I want you guys to try to ascend the ladder with me to the top of the tower, and we're going to try to peer down. So first of all, let me ask you this. Who's the main character in the story? Who is the main character in the story? Is it Esther? Is it Mordecai? Is it Hazarus? No, it's none of those people. The main character of this story is God. The main character of this story and every story that is in the Old Testament is unmistakably God is the main character. Yes, he may use individuals, kings, nations to tell his story, but the main character is always none other than God himself. In this particular story, it's fascinating because never, not one time do we hear the name of God. We never hear the word God. We never see him or meet him personally in this story. And yet, there is not one part of the story where his hand is not at work. He is over every page of the story, and yet you never hear his name or see him personally. He's the main character of the story. So let's, let's peer down together at this story of God and what he's doing with his people and see if we can come away with an awareness or a lesson or a takeaway from this. First and foremost, the thing that we need to see is the absolute and unending faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is so apparent in this story. More specifically, we see the faithfulness of God to protect and provide for his covenant people according to the covenant promise that he's made with them. If you think about what's happening here in this story, it's actually quite fascinating. You see, the book of Esther, this whole story happens after the whole Babylonian captivity. Okay? After the whole 70-year period where God sentences people into, into the captivity into Babylon, this actually happens after. So if you remember, when we actually studied the book of Ezra, we see King Cyrus making this decree that the Jews could go back to their land and rebuild the temple. That decree marks the end period of the 70 years. It's when they returned on that day. So the Jews were in captivity because of their disobedience to God, and so their captivity is over. So by the time this story is written, um, this story begins, there's a portion of God's people who were back in Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple, which tells me something amazing. I don't know if you, you feel the same way, but it tells me something amazing. It tells me that God is concerned for all of his people. He is faithful to all of his people. God not only provided for those brave people who decided to return to Israel and rebuild the temple, he also cared and provided for the people who stayed behind. Those who stayed under the rule of the Persian kings instead of returning to Jerusalem. He cared for them as well. I love this personally because it tells me something about God that I think we need to hear, that I need to hear. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to his, to his people when his people do great things, bold things, amazing things, and, and he is faithful to fulfill his promises when his people are fearful, when they're scared, when they're lowly and helpless, when they are simple and do nothing special. 
God is faithful to fulfill his promises to his people even when his people struggle to follow him. God chases after them and meets them where they are. And that's what you have in the book of Esther. This isn't the story of his people in Israel at this time. This is the story of the people who stayed behind, maybe because of fear, maybe because they were afraid of what was going to happen in the land of Canaan when they returned to face the enemies. But God still pursues them and fulfills his promises to them because he loves them. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard this, and I've I got to be honest, I'm shocked by this, but I, I've heard this said to me before, well, it's different for you, Doug, because you're a pastor. Well, God, doesn't, God only works that way for missionaries. Let me tell you, church, God is faithful to those that go and those that stay. God is faithful to those that have made ministry their full-time job and those that take time off their full-time job to do ministry. God is faithful to those in Jerusalem and those in Susa. God is faithful to those in Guatemala on the mission field and those in Anaheim Hills and those in Heath. God is faithful to those who have doctorate degrees and those that have learning disabilities. He is faithful to those who are strong in body and weak and frail. He is faithful to the rich as well to the poor. He is faithful to all who have called upon his name repented of their sin, and have trusted on him, hoped in him, and leaned on him as their savior and only hope for salvation. He is faithful to all who have done that. He is faithful to fulfill his promises that he has made to you as one who has believed in his son. His faithfulness is not contingent on your greatness or power or strength, or status, or accomplishments. His faithfulness has nothing to do with your ability, but has everything to do with his ability. And he's assured his faithfulness to you through the sacrifice of Jesus, that we can have confidence and awareness and knowledge that he is faithful and has provided a means of salvation through Christ and all the blessings that come with it. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right, we're going go, gonna to go deep for a second here. I hear in my own heart, and maybe out in your hearts too, this murmuring. Yeah, you can say God is faithful to fulfill his promises to us, but some of the things he promises are hard. Some of the places he calls us to go are difficult. Some of the circumstances that you've faced or that I've faced seems like God has forgotten his promises to me. It feels like God may have abandoned me. For if God is is truly faithful to protect and provide for me as a part of his people, then maybe I'm not a part of his people because I don't see it in my life. The circumstances that I'm in don't shout God is faithful they shout God is gone anybody ever feel like that you ever feel like that God is gone for a moment or for a season I want to address this but I want to hit another point and then wrap around to this The the next piece that we need to see that's happening here in this story from the big picture from the tower looking down is God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. 
by the sovereignty of God, I, I just want to give you a simple definition. What I mean by this is the complete and total authority and power that God has over every instance, every circumstance, every situation, and every person. So another way to say this is the sovereignty of God, another way to say the sovereignty of God is to say that God is in control, complete control, of absolutely everything. That's all the sovereignty of God means. The sovereignty of God is something that can, we can easily assert with our words. It's something that we can easily just confess and proclaim. All we've got to say is, yes, I believe that God is sovereign. So easy to do. And yet it is probably one of the most difficult things to walk in. Especially when things get hard. Or things go wrong. Or things get dark in your life. Or when God seems silent, distant, or absent. It's easy to accept that God is in control, that God is sovereign when he inclines a king's heart to allow God's people to return to the land and rebuild the temple. God's sovereign. Easy. It's a lot harder to accept that God is sovereign when, a, when you're a young orphaned girl who's being raised by your cousin you get taken by the king's men in the middle of the night to be prepared to be handed over to an ungodly and brutal king. Much more difficult in that circumstance. It's one thing to accept God's sovereign in your promotion at work, in your recent raise, in the birth of your child, in the positive report from your doctor, or when anything generally goes well in your life. It's easy to say, God, yes, you're in control, God. I can see it. You're doing good things. You're sovereign. It's another thing to accept that God is sovereign when you get laid off from your job. Or your business begins to fail. Or you have a miscarriage. Or you find out the prognosis is cancer. Or when any other calamity strikes or trial comes. It's much more difficult to walk in this reality that God is sovereign. And you see, what what I think happens is for some of us, the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God actually seem to conflict with one another. What I mean by that is this. They're not actually in conflict. They just seem to be in conflict with one another because we actually misunderstand what God's promises to us are. You see, what happens if we, if we falsely assume that what God promises to us is happiness, wealth, protection, health, security, comfort, good things, all the time, if we falsely assume that, then the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God are always going to get messed up because we misunderstand the promises of God. For some reason, we've come to understand that we come to think that God says that because we're his children, we now deserve to never get sick, never miss a mortgage payment, never have anything bad happen to us. For some reason, we've made God into our own little personal genies who is supposed to take care of our every need, our every desire, our every want to grant our wish when we ask. That's just simply not the case. Biblically speaking, it is not the case. If anything, God tells us that we are to sacrifice our happiness for the sake of others and for his name's sake. He asked us, asked us to sacrifice our finances not just a little, but to the point of loss. He asks us to go, go places where our health and our security may be compromised. 
He calls us not to comfort, but to discomfort for the sake of others and for the sake of his kingdom. It's actually the opposite of what we sometimes assume. You see, our expectations of God are off sometimes. We need to align our expectations to him and to his word, not align him and to his word to our expectations. If you believe that God is there to fulfill your every need and desire, then hearing that God is sovereign, it absolutely rocks your world, and in a negative way. Because if God is in control of everything and he desires for you to have good things all the time, then when something bad befalls you, what do you do? Maybe you, maybe you do this thing where you say, oh, uh, God must be gone. Maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe I'm not his child. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's just dead. Or maybe he never existed in the first place. Because if you believe that God is going to fulfill your every desire and he's sovereign and complete control to make it happen and doesn't make it happen, then there's either something wrong with you or something wrong with God. Do you see how dangerous those false understandings of God's promises in your life can be? Place yourself for a second in the shoes of Esther. Place yourself there for a second. You're a young girl. You're an orphan. Raised by your cousin. You know that this place that you live in is not your home, but you've never even seen your home. You know some of your people have returned home, but you, you had to stay for some reason. And so while you're here, you're an outcast in a foreign land. The people who are here tolerate you. Sometimes some people just straight hate you. It's a little confusing because you've always been told that, that you're a special people. You're God's people, that he's, he's faithful to fulfill his promises, and he's ultimately in control. Then one night, the king's men come in and take you away from your house and deliver you to the palace. And for an entire year, you're disconnected from your world and beautified so that the king may find you beautiful enough to force himself on you and take you as his queen. You then become associated, as his queen, associated with the people that are opposed to God. That are supposed to say separate from God. God's people are supposed to be separate from God, but now you're associated with them, married in. Then you hear of a plot. A plot from your husband's closest advisor to destroy the rest of your people. And you're the only one, you're told you're the only one who can stop him. The only one who could stop this genocide, but by Doing so, you have to go to the king without being summoned, and in doing so, you will probably die. Do you think Esther was in the midst of tough circumstances? It seemed like God was silent or absent or gone. You see how easy it could have been for her just to, to assume that God had abandoned her? Or maybe because she knows she married someone who, who lives a life that's opposed to God, maybe because of that now God's opposed to her, maybe. Or she could have thought that maybe the gods of the Persians were actually stronger than the god of the Hebrews. There's all kinds of things she could have thought. Something wrong with her or something wrong with God and her circumstance. All these things could have come into her mind. But she was reminded of the truth from Mordecai. 
He says to her, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He's confident that God's going to fulfill his promises to his people. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What Mordecai reminds Esther in those words, and what we all need to be reminded of, is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, and God is always sovereignly in control. Even in the midst of a circumstance that seems like God is silent, or seems like an impossible situation. What the book of Esther teaches us is that God remains faithful and sovereign in the toughest circumstances. So for us today, we need to be reminded of the same thing. Because our tendency is to go away from that truth and to think that God is distant or there's something wrong with us because God seems absent or because negative things are happening. In your difficult financial situation, God is faithful and sovereign. In your sickness, God is still faithful and he's still sovereign. In your depression, God is still faithful and he's still sovereign. In your mourning, in your loss, God is still faithful and he's still sovereign. In the face of your worst fears realized, God is still faithful he's still sovereign. In seemingly impossible circumstances, God is still faithful and he's still sovereign. God's promises to you in Christ are still active even when your circumstances are aggravating. His provision for you in Christ is still active even when you have less than an abundance. God's presence with you in Christ is still active even when he seems absent. God's faithfulness toward you abounds even when you feel abandoned. God's complete sovereignty is always active no matter what your current circumstances are. That's just the truth. We need to remember that that sometimes all we can see is the crumbling rock on the path before us or the water swirling around us. But we got to climb that tower and have confidence that our God is connecting the pieces of our lives in such a beautiful way. He is orchestrating my story and your story and our story together in such a fashion that he becomes the main character of the story. It's about him and his goodness and his faithfulness and his sovereignty even in the midst of our circumstances. Just like Esther. We need to be a people. Let us be a people that never lose sight of that bigger picture. Never lose sight of our God's sovereignty and faithfulness towards us that believe. Amen? Let's pray.